Welcome to Follow the Science, a podcast whose title has come to imply smug, we-know-better-than-you attitudes on the left and has been thrown around with some degree of sarcasm on the right. Well, I think today is a good day to talk about that. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast grew out of a fellowship from the Society for Professional Journalists. And of course, when I say follow the science, I mean it in a different way. I actually follow the science by talking to all kinds of scientists with all kinds of ideas. I think the controversy over this phrase is indicative of a bigger problem our society is having. It's a sort of a dysfunctional relationship between science, expertise, and public policy. My guest today is Jacob Hale Russell. He's a law professor at Rutgers University, and he's done a lot of writing on populism, what it means and how populists view expertise. He caught my attention with a piece he co-wrote for Tablet Magazine about America's mask-wearing policy, and he addresses why, when the science was far from settled, scientists, the public, and politicians embraced universal cloth masking as our primary pandemic mitigation measure. His piece also got into something I've been writing about a bit lately, and that's that a good policy can't be shaped entirely by science, because science can't tell you how much value to put on things like safety, equality, freedom, and quality of life. We had been working on a project about populism and expertise and the way in which, you know, populist movements around the world are often quite critical or dismissive of experts and some of the ways in which we think that critique is misunderstood, that it's just dismissed entirely as being a Luddite anti-knowledge perspective. But, you know, actually we think in some instances, and certainly not all, but in some instances, the grievances that are being raised are ones that really stem from the way expertise is misused by elites and, and the way in which, you know, we think a lot of what people say constitutes expertise is not really, you know, what what conventionally we would understand as, as expertise. So from the from the outset of the pandemic, the kind of rhetoric around follow the science intrigued us, uh, you know, ironic talking to you because I know your your podcast uh, is called talked that, about your, your podcast just, name. Exactly. I know. And um, I actually, but- I just turned in a piece to Bloomberg about how much I disagree with a piece in the Washington Post, which was about follow the science. You might have seen it. Yes, I did. And yeah. I think that follow the science is going to be a sort of a hollow slogan for a policy because policy has to be based on more than science. Science can tell you how risky something is. It can't tell you how much risk society should accept. It can tell you how many kids have died from COVID. It can't tell you whether that we should keep our schools closed in response. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that the use of the, you know, whatever the intention behind politicians immediately jumping to that as their, as their rhetorical explanation for everything, whatever they've intended, I think the consequences of it for the way we talk about pandemic responses has been really problematic. I think given people a false sense that there aren't trade-offs to be made, you know, that the trade-offs are purely technocratic ones that can be decided, you know, simply with equations as opposed to, you know, these are trade-offs that implicate real social values and and they're therefore properly the province of of everyone and of, of you know it, it can't just be a an exercise in politicians shifting blame onto this monolithic entity called science you know we got intrigued by that right away because it just seemed like an example of of what we were 
already looking at, which was kind of the, the misuse of expertise as kind of a cudgel to shut down debate rather than as, uh, you know, the proper use of expertise, which is to, you know, bring much needed information and, and knowledge into a discussion. And so I think this piece in particular that, you know, I think masks are just a, a microcosm of that larger problem where sort of discussion gets shut down very quickly. So the way, you know, one of the things that we we talk about in the piece is some of the early efforts to push for cloth masking on a society-wide level. And it came from, you know, this, this activist group called Masks for All. And, you know, so the, so the backstory for those who don't know is Masks for All was a, a group of uh, headed by a, a artificial intelligence entrepreneur named Jeremy Howard. And they went and they did a literature review of past studies of masking, and they came to a very different conclusion from the other existing evidence reviews. So there were already some evidence reviews from Cochrane and elsewhere suggesting that masking, and in particular cloth masking, would not have much of an effect on transmission, and they came to the opposite conclusion. And so what you would expect at that point is you know, a debate or discussion or further research, or, uh, you know, there, there are people coming to different conclusions. And instead, you know, the rhetoric that the people from masks were all sold was very much a, the science is settled cloth masking works. And it was an unequivocal, uh, you know, no doubt about it. There were, there were a number of instances where they very aggressively dealt with critics. You know, one of their critics was Michael Osterholm, who's, you know, was a Biden advisor and very much a COVID hawk and had a lot of critiques of, of did not really believe that cloth masks would, uh, would be effective. So as a little background, Michael Osterholm is one of the world's top experts in pandemic preparedness and infectious disease. He's the person reporters like me would consult when there was a new threat from Ebola, Zika, or some new form of influenza. And I actually talked to him just yesterday. And so I do know that he doubts the efficacy of universal masking with cloth masks. And so in an upcoming episode of this podcast, we'll have him explain why and how the U.S. managed to adopt a policy that wasn't really supported by science. And he'll have a lot more to say about the pandemic and the relationship between science and policy and what scientists do and don't still understand. Some people, I think, expected that this, like, like many of the early policies we were doing with the pandemic, were you know, temporary emergency policies made in the absence of evidence and knowledge. And they would be willing to admit that, but would say, you know, look, we've got to do something. We don't know if this will work, but this is all we've got right now. We'll try it. And then we'll, we'll try to gather evidence to figure out what works and we'll try other things. And I think that was not the opinion of the, you know, the mass for all approach was the science is settled. They work. And anyone who disagrees with us is wrong and unscientific and generating misinformation. We don't say that we are completely and absolutely certain that our policy is the be all and end all, because how can you possibly be certain about interventions that you've never tried before? And how can you do it when you don't, when you're actively attempting, when you've declared it unethical to do research to gather more evidence? I think that's one of the most astonishing things to me about the, the masks for all proponents was the degree to which they actively from day one said doing a randomized control trial here would be unethical. I, I think that made it very difficult for and impossible for anyone to do much in the way of research. And that's why we have so little, uh, you know, little in the way of good evidence now uh, on this policy, other than, you know, the two, the two studies you've written about and some observational evidence. But, you know, we, we could have much better answers of that are more granular. Of, are there circumstances in which certain types of masking is helpful but we don't because there was just no appetite to do that, that research. Yeah. 
And well, and you pointed out something I think is really important, which is that people conflate the question, do masks work with the question, should every school child have to wear a mask in school all day? And, you know, we know N95 masks do have some effectiveness if you're in a setting where you're likely to be exposed. But that doesn't say anything about other masks. It doesn't say anything about the whole principle of universal masking or masking to protect others. Yeah, I, th- I think this is, I mean, this is a thing that's happened with, with a lot of pandemic debates where they get, everything gets stylized into, into two binary opposites. So it's like with vaccines, I think you can say it's like you're pro-vaccine or you're anti-vaccine. And, then, and now it means even folks who, you know, question, who are pro-vaccine, but question colleges mandating a booster shot, that's now in the anti-vaxxer camp. And I think we saw the same thing with masks where it's like, we conflate a whole bunch of positions, but there's just been no nuance in it. And we, and this, this, one of the other things that happened really early on was this, this widespread claim that masks and mask mandates have no downsides. And, you know, that just always struck me as a, a bizarre thing to say. I think what, what maybe was meant at the beginning was as pushback against people who you know, took an extreme view that masking was going to cause brain damage through oxygen deprivation or something. They're saying that's not a downside. But of course, you know, mask mandates as a policy, at a minimum, one downside is that they've created this huge rift in our society where people are, you know, that is actually a downside of policy. And I think people don't take that seriously, but a policy that divides people is in fact a downside of the policy. And that's sort of putting aside even like the, you know, more, more direct concerns about developmental issues for children and interfering with learning and so on. And also just the social, like, you know, we didn't wear masks before the pandemic. So we must've thought there was some downside, right? If, if an intervention has even the marginal, marginal benefit, but has no cost whatsoever, you will always do it. And I think this is part of why it's hard for some of the advocates to see any off ramps for for masking because if you really believe there are absolutely no downsides, you should never get rid of the policy. And I don't think that's a a logical um, you know logical conclusion. I just can't imagine that it's as much fun for kids to go to school and have activities and wear a mask all day and sit apart at lunch or whatever they do when they eat. It, it seems like a it has to decrease the quality of their experience. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it just I can't I can't quite picture it having no detrimental effect on these kids. If they're asked to do it, you know, for years of doing it for a month, who cares? You know, doing it for six months, maybe who cares? But doing it indefinitely? Yeah, well, and I think a lot of teachers have said it's also it makes it harder to teach. I, I feel, you know, as a as a uh, university professor, I feel like not being able to read student faces and not being able to get that it, it changes it completely changes the classroom dynamic. Now, could that be worth it in certain circumstances? Of of course. You know, any any cost can be worth it under some circumstances with some benefits, but I think the the language of infinite benefits and no costs has just been incredibly problematic. Also, it it forgets that different people will experience an intervention differently. So you see a lot of people and I find it to be so frustrating. You know, I don't mean to say that my experience as a as a university professor is universal of everyone and it's you see people someone someone says something about how we should get rid of masks for toddlers and someone immediately responds, "Well, my child doesn't mind it." And I think we forget not everyone experiences every policy in the same way. I mean, it's sort of like lockdowns where people were like, "Well, my life has been fine and lot." You know, not everyone has the same experience of a policy. 
issues that surround public health tend to give rise to extreme rhetoric because people's health and ultimately lives are at stake and depend on getting it right. And so that sometimes leads some factions to get emotional and extreme and shut down the ability to have a rational debate. And I think one of the things that's just unfortunate is, you know, those are real downsides. And But as soon as you mention them, the, the argument, then it, then it's your not just an anti-masker, but you're in favor of people dying. And it's, you know, it's, it's like people in this, in this debate make all sorts of assumptions on both sides that it's like incredible amounts of reduction and harm caused by masking that are not really borne out by any data and then no downsides. So that even if you want to raise the question, what are the downsides? Someone will, will say, well, you know, how you do, it's like the, the, the school board uh, chair who, who said in response to some parents who wanted to I think it was about reopening schools, but said, do you want your children alive or do you want them educated? I mean, we've just created this. It's very hard to intervene in a conversation where people assume you have murderous intent towards children. And no one in this debate wants anyone to die, right? I mean, I think everyone is coming at it from a good faith standpoint, but it immediately gets you know stylized and polarized into this extreme uh, version of, uh, you know, it's just, it's just such an unproductive way to have a public conversation about an important question. That was a problem. Politicians did make claims that were a lot like campaign promises. That is, if only you followed my policy, COVID would go away. It's really not any more reality-based than Donald Trump's early assertion that the disease might go away on its own. You know, most policymakers, probably what they thought was, we don't know if they work, they probably don't have a huge effect, but we don't have anything else to throw at this right now. So we're going to try it. And that was not what was said to people. What, they, what people were told was, you know, wear a mask and in two weeks, COVID will be gone. You know, it was sort of this extreme version. Right. And then there was a blame game that right. it's because those bad people didn't wear their mask enough that we still have COVID. There was actually a belief that right. COVID would go away if everyone wore a mask. Right. And I think the, the, the moralizing of COVID, I mean, I think on the, on the other side, you know, this, this notion that if you, that I think was prevalent in the early days, it's like, if you got COVID, it was because you had done something wrong and therefore were a bad person because you hadn't done the right things. And I think that was such a bizarre message to sell given we've gotten locked into this extreme battle on masking that I think has taken on sort of political and, and, you know, almost religious overtones on both sides, frankly. Yeah. It has on both sides. And so, you know, one of the things that seems weird to me is the way that at first, yeah, there was this, I guess, stigma to getting COVID. But then later, it was almost like this sort of feeling that, you know, we should be very respectful to these victims, but still hateful toward the villains that gave them COVID. But somehow that doesn't quite add up because you can't give anybody COVID unless you get it, that there's a pretty big overlap between people who get COVID and people who gave someone COVID. And yet it seems like there is this sort of victim villain morality idea that is a little vague. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, I, I, I was going to say, but I realized I don't know that this is true. You know, have we, have we ever done this kind of moralizing, you know, with an infectious disease before. And clearly, clearly we have, I mean, I guess that, you know, the, the even just thinking about, um, you know, HIV and AIDS there, there, there has been, right. I mean, so it's, but it, what we, what we should know is that it doesn't, it's not, you know, shame and, and blame is not a good, it's not good. And, and what's remarkable is, is watching people who really should know that, you know, engaging in, in that, I, I, you know, I guess it's a, it's a natural human instinct, but 
you would think people who are doing science communication would would sort of go out of their way. And and there are people who have, and I, they should get full credit for pushing that message. But I think it got, you know, drowned out on the sea of, you know, the the Grim Reaper walking the beach of Miami saying telling people we, that they we were, you yeah, know. The, the, that was a very bizarre thing and people don't talk about it much anymore. But it seems like it was that was all based on misinformation that the Grim Reaper guy was kind of misinformed. Yeah. And I think I mean, you know, even if I, I, I'm not sure even if it was true that beaches were a major site of transmission, that that would be an effective means of communicating. And now he's starting to get at something I've been thinking about for a long time, and that's this illusion that we're in control of the pandemic or could be in control of it. We are in control of some aspects of the pandemic, but there are a lot of other things that we don't have much control over and don't even completely understand. And one of those is what drives the pandemic's waves so high up and then down so steeply. And I think if we stop pretending that our policies were what was controlling that, we could actually learn what was going on and maybe harness that and actually gain a little bit more control. But I also think some of it, the, the villain thing, I wonder if some of it is this, it's like the overall story of the pandemic where I think we overestimate our ability to control outcomes. And I think it's it's tough to say this because people immediately say, well, then you're saying just let it rip. And it, I think you can have a nuanced view, which is that a lot of the spread of a pandemic is a chance and factors that can't be changed and demographics and, and geography and weather. You know, it's all sorts of things that we have no control over. Now, I wrote a column in uh, the sort of late summer of 2020 pointing out that none of the experts could really explain why the pandemic was going up in waves and down in waves. And I think they headlined it something like, it's it's not just attributable to people being good. And, you know, that that has persisted that the waves go up, they go down, and you can't point to something and say, here's why it went down. It looks like they go down partly because we do get something like herd immunity to whatever variant is with us, and then a new variant crops up and cases go back up. But the the behavior isn't really changing or the policy in sync with these waves. I, I remember that piece of yours because I think it was it was during, I mean, we still have this, but it was during, I think, the period where the typical COVID headline was something like X state is about to change its mask rules. And in two weeks, everything will be, you know, it was all these predictions of X intervention will produce Y result, just wait two weeks. And and a lot of them weren't being borne out. And I think, you know, I don't know why, why people are so uncomfortable with the idea that there's some portion of it. I don't know if it's, if it's like just fear of, of things that are not in our control, but it's weird because then we, then there are things that are in our control. You know, there are aspects of social policy, sick leave policy, or, you know, improving our healthcare system, expanding hospital capacity, you know, all sorts of things that are in our control. And we've done none of that or very little of that. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear a little more about your take on populism and expertise and what it is you think is misunderstood about populists. So I think a lot of people, when they hear the word populist, they immediately go to one image that they have. They Maybe they go to a, a, a particular image of a particular type of Trump voter. And the reality is that you know populism is a, a global phenomenon. There are people. There's there's a right wing version of populism. There's a left wing version of populism. You know they're not they're not some monolithic group that all have one particular set of views. They're not all you know they're not all racist. They're not all nativist. They're not all anti-immigration. Right? They they there's a, a range of views, but I think a unifying theme is 
a distrust of elites and a sense that elites and 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 you know politicians and, and you know I think they put journalists and academics in, in this category have become sort of aloof and disconnected from reality and um, kind of offer these solutions that have no alternatives, right? So a lot of, I think, populism is this response to politicians saying there, there is no alternative. And I think um, follow the science was an example of that. I think the way that the way the expression got used was there is one, it, right, it would be wonderful if what follow the science meant was we should bring science into the debate. But what it ended up meaning was our policy is the right policy and there is no alternative to it. And I think most of what we see in populism, whatever form it takes, is some kind of a response to being told, this is the way the system is, and you have no, no choice. And I think populism um, often is kind of a, a critique of that and an attempt to show that there are alternatives. I think elites, since you know, we're, we're in academia and we're, I think one of our audiences is our, is our colleagues, frankly, trying to understand why it is that these people who I think feel like they have good intentions why, why so many people are angry at them and trying to help people understand why their well-intentioned policies produce such a backlash and such anger. A good example recently has been all of the photos of, of politicians you know, taking their masks off for, for photographs or posing with, uh, without masks in front of a group of kids wearing masks. And I think to me, the most amazing thing is the is the befuddlement that some of them express when they're you know, like, they say, well, How why- How could they be befuddled? It's so, wait- <laughs> They're telling us that we should never take our mask off or we'll kill people. And then they're doing it on a picture and they're not, they're not instantly ashamed and horrified. They actually, what, how could they be befuddled? Yeah. I, and I, I mean, I guess that's what we're, we're trying to write into that, into that void to sort of say, look, you know, it's, people are, people have a reason to be angry at you and you may, you may think you're doing the right thing, but there's a reason why people are mad at you. But there can be kind of a rational populist critique of expertise, which is not, I think it often gets turned into they don't like knowledge and they don't like science. And I think actually that's unfair because I actually think, you know, phrases like follow the science are themselves unscientific. They themselves are, you know, not good for science. And so I think there's a, a position that's that's saying, no, it's not that we dislike knowledge and expertise. It's that we dislike its misuse as a, as a you know, um, cudgel to kind of end end debate, and I think that's what we're kind of pushing back in our in our broader work. So, uh, do you think that expertise then um, that some of the problem is expertise is misused? I think you that was how you phrased it earlier in our conversation. Yeah, I think I think it often gets used. I mean, I think it gets used to shut down debate rather than to inform debate. And I think we get into these. You, you saw this a lot early on in COVID with with people, you know, fighting over who has the right expertise to settle this questions. And then, uh, you know, a phrase like the way follow the science was used by, by politicians, I think suggested, look, we, we went, we asked the expert, they told us what to do and we did that. And I, I don't think that's, you know, that's not really a model of expertise in public policymaking, which really should be, uh, you know, a range of different voices informing, providing information, providing transparency, providing all the data, you know, to me, expertise is providing that information and informing it, but then also saying, look, here are the questions that we are not competent to decide. Here are the questions that are actually matters of public judgment. And I think instead we've seen, you know, sort of science by petition where, you know, a, a, someone will say, here's the policy and we have 5,000 scientists have signed it. So therefore it must be right. And I think it, it really creates a, a harmful and, and misleading view of what expertise 
can do. I also think the other consequence it has on expertise is that it drives out research in favor of sort of partisanship. I mean, the masking debate is an example of it where you know there was no appetite or ability to do much in the way of randomized trials. And so there's no incentive for an academic to do research in an area where no one is going to change their mind. So I think here there's a need for balance because, of course, in an emergency, you have to use incomplete knowledge to make decisions and often doing something, even something that might not work, is still a better bet than doing absolutely nothing. There's a famous book called Merchants of Doubt, which explains why society stalled way too long on taking action against smoking and climate change. That is, waiting for better and better evidence, and it turned out there were people who were paid by industry to delay regulations by pointing to the inevitable, imperfect, incomplete nature of science. But here, in the pandemic, there really was very little knowledge of any kind at the start, and we still had to do something. It seems like the problem we're having now is that people haven't continued to study our mitigation measures after they were put in place. And now we're facing the possibility of employing some of these over the long term, that is, indefinitely. So here's what Jacob Hale Russell had to say when I brought up Merchants of Doubt. I think it's a really unfortunate misunderstanding of, of the Merchants of Doubt research, because as you suggest, right, part of part of why we can can label you know, the tobacco industry or the fossil fuel industry that the people referred to in that, you know, part of why we know that they are emergence of doubt was because of the pervasiveness of published research over time. And, you know, all, all the, you know, where we have so much evidence over such a long period of time. And, it, it, you know, people were, were using the emergence of doubt analogy in, you know, against certain scientists in like March of 2020. And it's like, you couldn't have, you could not have scientific certainty on par with global warming or tobacco by that. I mean, it's, it, it, the analogy just doesn't work. And I think it, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how, how, what you think about this as a, as a journalist, but I, I, I think one of the things that happened, I used to be a journalist and this is just very anecdotal sense I get from some of my friends that, so first of all, that, that journalists have learned, you know, feel, feel responsible for their part in the merchants of doubt, you know, that they painted climate change maybe for too long as unsettled science and gave too much equal weight. Back, I have a degree in geophysics, so I've been yelling about climate change since the 80s. <laughs> so, but I, but I think for a lot of people who hadn't done that, I think there was like the sense of guilt that they had. And then I also think that, you know, the very beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot in the media that, that I think came from, you oh, know, um, right. government saying, downplaying, oh, where we're saying, oh, it's just the flu. And, yeah, and, right. which was nuts. And, like, we had no idea how this would compare with flu. Right. And I think there was like an over, it was like they felt guilty for overplaying it and therefore overreacted in the other direction. I also know as a journalist that the public is not getting the full array of expert views and opinions. And one reason for that is that a lot of experts do have a lot of interesting things to say, but they don't necessarily want to weigh in on really contentious issues because it's just going to bring them grief. So even if they have moderate positions, those can get mischaracterized and they can get attacked. And in my opinion columns, I actually think I would prefer to write about more arcane things. I have the ability to do that. And it's a lot safer than writing about controversies, especially things dealing with kids and COVID or masks. Those are things people are really emotionally engaged with. 
and I didn't really want to talk about it. I was thinking, you know, I can write about genomics and all this kind of cool science where they look at the protein structures of the virus. So why do I want to get involved in anything about masks? That's just deadly. So I feel that way too, though, at the same time, the people who pay me to write these columns, when they say, oh, please do this, I do want to kind of do my part to address it and not brush it off on someone else. So I know I have my own mixed feelings about it, that it would be a lot easier for me to just write about nitty gritty science and forget these ugly debates. Yeah. Well, and I think people are, you know, I think it's easy to say it's just, it's, I've seen people say this about, about people in science who didn't, you know, who maybe just sort of stayed silent, that it's cowardice. And, you know, forgetting that, you know, I sort of, I, I think part of it is also, it's not just that it's professional downside, but it's that people won't listen to you and you will then lose your credibility and then you'll lose your ability to speak about it in the future. So I think some people, it's not like they're not speaking out because they're personally afraid. It's sort of like if you get labeled early on in the debate, an anti-masker or a let it rip Great Barrington, you know, you'll never, no one will ever listen to you again. And so what's what's the point? And you've, it's not just that it, it hurts your career, but that you have now lost the ability to communicate productively to society going forward. And I think that it's, it's, we shouldn't be in a position where people, you know, feel that they can't put out a, a, a position or even a question, right? Some of it was like someone asks a question and they immediately get attacked for asking the question. And I, it's, I think it's such a, a, a problematic place for science and academia. So do you think that some of the problem with expertise and populism is that experts are being allowed to dictate values as well as scientific input, that they're mixing up their scientific conclusions with their, or inferences with their value system, whether they value safety, whether they value freedom, whatever they value that is unquantifiable by science. Yeah, it's a tough question because I, I guess I, I, I feel pretty strongly that that there's nothing wrong with being a scientist who has values and even with 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 promoting those values i think it's it's when people get a, a a misimpression about what is being done when when people think that the value laden part is actually just objective fact as opposed to understanding here's the you know here's the objective part and here's the value laden argument and i think some of it is that we don't we're often uncomfortable with using cost benefit language, I think, especially around things like this, because people think, oh, then you're weighing up the value of someone's life. But I think without making the cost and benefits of different ideas and and, and the uncertainty, without making cost benefits and, and uncertainty bounds explicit, it's really hard to have an intelligent discussion about what the trade-offs actually are. And so I think it's inevitable that that scientists will have values. And I don't, I, my critique wouldn't be of that. It would be of you know, maybe more of a, a policymaker who says, you know, who kind of evade, I, I think in a, in a way it's, it's a part of the story is it's politicians evading blame. They realized there were a lot of downsides from the beginning of COVID, a lot of downsides in whatever you do, because someone is going to be angry and people are going to die. And they said, gosh, this is a no win situation. So wouldn't it be convenient if we just said, ah, it's science doing this, not us, right? Lockdown is science, not a judgment we have made based on uncertainty. I mean, that seems like these labels we're putting on people are more pervasive than I've ever seen. It's like name calling. It shouldn't work out when you're beyond first grade. And yet it seems like you can label somebody as something and it actually affects their reputation and ability to communicate in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, there's some there's some extent to which it's inevitable that we're going to group people because we need, you know, I think it's sort of it's like a heuristic to sort of quickly understand where an argument is coming from, and, and you you kind of lump people. I think the 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 most unfortunate thing is not just the lumping; it's that the lumpings then got made so extreme where instead of focusing on uh, you know the the debate in the middle, we focused on sort of the two extreme ends. And then I, I actually think maybe the, the bigger problem is not the lumping, but the assumption that someone who is in a different side from you is is evil or acting in bad faith or paid off by you know uh, the other side or you know doing it for the wrong reasons. And I think then people lose sight of some of the philosophical and 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 moral issues at at stake. So I think. You know, as much as I would like for people to just evaluate every argument on on its merits and not lump people together, some some lumping is going to always happen. It's the it's the mix of those those groupings becoming so extreme and so stylized, and then uh, layering on top of that this assumption of bad faith. But if you assume that the other side is actually motivated, you know, by by evil or by an agenda or by money, there's no reason or ability to attempt to compromise with them. So you know, I. To me, that's probably the the more. I don't know why people why we're doing that, but I think that's the more, almost the more problematic aspect of it than than just having it be polarized. So, do you think that follow the science that it has become so tarnished that I should get rid of it as the title of my podcast? You know, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but I feel like what you're saying is you're not making a, a normative claim about how policy should be made. I mean, I actually think in a in a funny way you are. It's almost a it can almost be a, a pun or a double entendre on it, and that what you're doing is you're following what's happening in the science in addition to advocating for a scientific approach to scientific questions. So, uh, you know, I also, I, I I get annoyed about the phrase, but I think for some people it began as kind of a rejoinder against, you know, an anti-science attitude. And I think that's, you know, that's also fine. I think it's the use of it that is problematic is, is when a politician says, we're just following the science. You know, they're asked an important and tough question by a journalist and their answer is, we're going to follow the science. And that's the extent of their answer. And there's no pushback and no one asks the follow-up and they, they say nothing more. I mean, that's, I think, the real problem because it, it, it's not, you know, I don't think any scientist thinks that's what science is. It's, a, it's such a misleading version of it. So I think you can keep the name. <laughs> well, I'm glad he thinks that the name is still okay, especially since I'm using follow the science to mean that I'll be helping people follow what's going on in science, the way you might follow sports or other kinds of current events. There was a Washington Post article recently where I was quoted talking about the phrase follow the science, and I think that piece got something slightly wrong by saying that I was steering clear of politics. As you might have noticed, I talked about politics quite a bit in this episode and have done so in previous episodes. I think it's really important to examine the relationship between politics and science. What I had tried to explain to that Post reporter was that I wasn't using the phrase follow the science to indicate that I had any sort of entrenched political position or that I was trying to use it to promote an affiliation with any particular political party or faction. So further into the future, I may be starting a new science podcast and that might get a new name. And I promise to keep you posted on how that develops. So in the meantime, this podcast will continue to be called Follow the Science and it'll continue to follow the science and I hope continue in the spirit of free inquiry on neutral ground.
Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam. You can follow Faye on Twitter at Faye Flam. That is F-A-Y-E-F-L-A-M. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator. If you liked today's episode, we'd really love it if you left us a positive rating and review wherever you listened. Thanks in advance, and we'll see you next week.